I feel the sweet presence of Lord in this place. I'm grateful for Him, and I'm grateful to be with the people of God in His presence. Um, it's hard for um, it's hard for the first time you speak at any place for it not to feel like an audition. So, if you all can just humor me tonight and um, just act like I'm your brother in Christ who believes in the Word of God, and just thankful and grateful to be with the people of God. And uh, we'll just talk about His Word and have faith in what it can do in our lives. Does that sound like a fair deal? Amen. Amen. Um, for those of you that don't know, uh, Sister Sunitha introduced me, but my name's Sal Bria. My wife is Alicia over there. And uh, we came here about uh, uh, relocated to St. Louis from West Virginia. I'd, I'd pastored there. And we felt directed by the Lord to come here uh, to pursue uh, my education at UGST. <clears throat> and um, we are grateful to this church for... Uh, welcoming, uh, welcoming us, uh, being kind to us, um, and most of all, taking care of our children. Uh, there's nothing that means more to us than that. So seeing our kids run down the hallway to their Sunday school classes, I wish um, I wish I was able to thank them, but it, it means the world to us. So we're grateful for that. Um, I'd also like to express my gratitude to the pastoral staff, Brother Bland, for inviting me to speak. My prayer is simple. I just want to help somebody in the, in the Lord. That's all I want. Um, I don't think Brother Bland uh, typically takes the text in the beginning, but we'll definitely get into texts in a moment. Um, but as a way of introducing our discussion, I, I want to read to you an excerpt from uh, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts. He spoke a, a commencement speech at his son's high school graduation. You may have heard this in a sermon before. It was in 2017, and I think it was in a lot of pulpits. But he says this, and the words are pretty powerful. He says, now commencement speakers will typically wish you good luck and extend good wishes to you. I will not do that, and I'll tell you why. From time to time in the years to come, I hope you'll be treated unfairly so that you'll come to know the value of justice. I hope that you'll suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, but I hope you'll be lonely from time to time so that you don't take your friends for granted. I wish you had bad luck, again, from time to time so that you'll become conscious of the role of chance in life and understand that your success is not completely deserved and that the failure of others is not completely deserved either. And when you lose, as you will, I hope that every now and then your opponent will gloat over your failure. It's a way for you to understand the importance of sportsmanship. I hope you'll be ignored so you know the importance of listening to others. And I hope you'll have just enough pain to learn compassion. Whether I wish these things or not, they are going to happen. And whether you benefit from them or not will depend upon your ability to see the message and your misfortunes. And I want to speak to you uh, for the the next 15 minutes or so on uh, really that topic. And we're not going to say misfortunes because you'll, you know, we don't believe in misfortunes uh, in Christianity. We'll just, we'll call it adversity. Uh, don't miss the message in your adversity. Uh, it doesn't take very long as a, as a Christian to um, understand this, but just because you serve Jesus, it doesn't mean that problems disappear. What Christianity does for us is it solves life's greatest problem, the biggest problem that all of us have, the ultimate problem. 
It brings us back into relationship with the very one that created us. It heals that relationship because of his forgiveness of sin and brings us back to the very one that formed us. But with this new life in Christ, this Christian life, comes an entirely new set of problems. I solved the ultimate problem, but now you have new problems, problems that the atheist doesn't have. Questions arise that didn't exist before, and now they're relevant. Why do bad things happen to good people? And why do the wicked prosper? Atheists don't have to answer that question. Why isn't the Lord responding to my prayers? When I'm working the hardest for the Lord, why do I experience the worst from others? Have you ever asked these questions? And there's a lot of seasoned saints in this place who are way further down the road than I am. You've asked these questions. A real Christian life has adversity. And adversity brings with it all of these questions, and the Bible is not afraid of them. In fact, it welcomes them. We get entire books that give us permission to explore these questions. The book of Job is a poetic masterpiece, a gift from God to the church to help us with adversity. Who can forget about the weeping prophet, Jeremiah, who wrote an entire book on lament? There are, of course, the Psalms where the writers pray and they sing their emotions. They pray their anger, they pray their fear, they pray their anxieties and their doubts, and they give them to the Lord. But what about Habakkuk, the prophet with the strange name? We forget about him, and I couldn't possibly do justice to this wonderful prophet in 15 minutes, but I just hope to whet your appetite to him. His book is very short, three chapters. It's quite a unique book. The first two chapters, he has a conversation with God, and then he sings a song. That's it. That's the book. His dialogue is completely unique. As Kenneth Barker says in the New American Commentary, instead of speaking to the people for God, Habakkuk spoke to God for the people. You see that? Instead of being God's voice to the people, Habakkuk became our voice to God. See that? Like Job, he says the things that maybe we don't even know how to say. He speaks the things that we don't know how to speak. And here's what he faced and here's what he saw. He looked around Judah and he looks at the people of God and he sees that the most wicked people in Judah, the people that are least righteous, those people are the most prosperous. That's what he sees. He's looking at God's people, the most violent, the most destructive, the most contentious, and they are the most successful. And he says, God, are you indifferent about this? Don't you care? Don't you see what's going on here? I mean, God, I want to turn this ship around. Like all the prophets before me, I want to turn this ship around. But it ain't moving. And the people that are winning are the worst amongst us, and nothing is working. And he finds himself in in the exact state of mind that many of us find ourselves in whenever we're in his shoes, whenever we're facing adversity, confused. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? How long, oh God? This lament would be completely familiar to the Jewish cries during the Holocaust. 
to the folks who were slaves in pre-Civil War America, they know all about this lament. How long? How long? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you just sit back idly and look at the wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law, it's paralyzed. And justice, it never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. And justice goes forth perverted. It's all wrong, God. It's all wrong. Those are bold words. They're not mine. They're the prophets. Philip says this. The earlier prophets had preached against the same sins. But now, a century later, a century Later, the wickedness that had invited the Assyrian invasion was crying to high heaven for another visitation of wrath. The sinning seemed to go on and on and on, age after age, generation after generation. And no wonder Habakkuk asked, how long shall I cry? Could you imagine being born into injustice and you died in injustice? They were born into it and they died in it. And if you think that the silent treatment from heaven was unpalatable, the answer is not much better. God says this. He says, I'm going to take the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. I'm going to raise them up, and I'm going to let them take you into slavery. That was his response. That's what the dialogue sounds like. So this more wicked nation is going to prosper over us, God? I'm confused. I don't get it. See, crisis of faith is what happens when your ideas about God collide with the reality of your circumstances. I mean, you just, you knew God worked like this. You just knew it. And you knew that if I do this, he does this. And he seems so predictable, then the circumstances in your life, they just destroy that idea. I had a friend of mine who was, uh, when we were younger, we were having a conversation and um, we were talking about healing, and, and he brought up spe- specifically somebody that had prayed for a healing, and it didn't come to fruition. And he said, well, they just didn't have enough faith. He said that if they only would have had enough faith, God would have healed them. And then I watched this same individual later, one in his life, years and years and years later, pray and pray and pray for one of his children. And his children was lost in the womb. His ideas about God came into collision with the circumstances in his life. What happened? He was confused. Adversity causes confusion. And there's good reason. I mean, I read a sermon uh, from Charles Spurgeon when I was preparing for this. And like any good Puritan preacher that came before him, he has like 30 good points. They preach like 30-point sermons. You know, 15 minutes is like a, a bad joke with them. You know, they're, they're going for hours. So he has like a 30-point sermon, and he has all these points as he's going through adversity and how it's explained in Scripture. So to try to track these, if you're a human being with a silent heaven, try to track, well, God uses it to show his glory. God uses it to develop your character. He uses it to expose secret sin. He uses it just so you can share in the sufferings of Christ to become a picture of him. He uses it to humble you. And he had probably three or three, four, and that, three or four more. And that was just the Christian list. It kept going for unbelievers. So this brings questions. This is my fault. What is God teaching me? Is this just so like, I'm so pure I can take this? Or is this like, I'm really prideful and I need to be humbled? Which is it, God? 
more questions come. In the middle of it, funny enough, we're likely to not have any answers. And we have this sense within ourselves, and we just know, if I just had more information, if I just knew, have you ever thought that? If I just knew, like I could take anything, but if I just need to know, and, and they're, they actually kind of believe this is true. There's a, there's a great, uh, Tim Keller has a great quote. He says that God answers every prayer. He answers it exactly the way that you would want him to answer it if you knew everything that he did. It's great because it's true. If we knew everything that he knew, we would be all in on whatever. But we don't. Our brains don't have the horsepower. They were never designed to have the horsepower. And maybe we'll never know in this life. You know, the early church had no idea that Stephen's death would be a catalyst for the gospel going to the whole world. You know, Stephen, who most of you just gloss over because he's just glossed over in Acts, read about him a little, just pay a little bit of attention to chapter 6, 7, and 8. He, see, by all, all, all looks, like, this is the next guy. He's a servant who's a Greek-speaking Jew, who's just ready, and he's starting to do miracles, and he's, he's preaching. He's preaching the, the, one of the most powerful messages in the Bible, Stephen preaches. He's a powerful preacher, and, and you're just, if you're reading along and you don't know the end of the story, you're like, this is the guy. This is Paul, is what you're thinking. This is the guy. And the ending of Stephen is he's, he's underneath, the last we see of Stephen, he's underneath a pile of stones. And the church had no idea what we know, what Luke tells us, which is that was the catalyst to spreading the gospel outside of Jerusalem. They didn't know that. They had no idea. All they knew is when they came to church, they looked at Stephen's seat and it was empty. Job had no idea. He had no idea about the conversation in heaven. Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him. All he knows is he lost everything. He lost his family, he lost his health, he lost his wealth. And his friends show up, show up and let him know it's his fault. And he had no idea. There's none like him in all the earth. John the Baptist had no idea. He's just having a crisis of faith in prison, wondering if this really was the Messiah. Are you sure this is him? I mean, I have spiritual vertigo. Like, I can't see up from down, and nothing is going the way it's supposed to go. And I'm confused, because adversity brings confusion. And he's facing extreme adversity, and he's there in prison, and he has no idea that Jesus is saying, there is none like John the Baptist. No one like him. He had no idea. He just knew his life had fallen apart. But what we learn in Habakkuk's dialogue with God is that if we have enough time, if we can step back in fact, out of time and into eternity and look into time, 
there will be a message in our adversity. Habakkuk does something amazing. He says, I'm going to stand on a wall. I'm going to stand on a wall. And I want a better answer. There's got to be something better than this. There's got to be good news in this. I mean, you are the God of good news. Habakkuk knew God's sensibilities. And he said, there's got to be good news in this. And I'll wait however long it takes. I want an answer, whether now or later. Stubborn faith. I'm confused, but I have stubborn faith. Look what the Lord says. And the Lord answered, write the vision. Make it plain on tables so me he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. I love this. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul that is puffed up, it is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. You know the reformers, those reformers that stood up against the Catholic Church and changed all of history through the Reformation? They weren't quoting Paul. They were quoting Paul, quoting Habakkuk. We don't get that without a message in the middle of his adversity. The arrogant, prideful soul will die, but those that have faith will live. It's upside down, Habakkuk, but give it some time. It will work itself out. Philip says this, The silence of God has given many an ungodly sinner an excuse to blaspheme, and many a weary believer the temptation to give up his faith. Habakkuk learned that when the saint asks, How long? God simply says, Trust me. Trust me. So that was Habakkuk's message in his misfortune or adversity. And I have no idea what you face. And I have no idea what that message is. Anybody that speaks very confidently about knowing probably doesn't. But one thing I can tell you with confidence is you can trust God because he's good. And that given enough time, it will all make sense. It will all make sense. You pray with me. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for being so faithful to us. I'm grateful for the body of believers. I'm grateful for your people, Lord, and I pray you bless them today. Let your word be our source of strength. Let it be our power, Lord. Help us, Jesus, to stand even when things don't make sense. Help us to trust, to have stubborn faith, and to wait, Lord. Wait on your answer. And to know that you're a good God. And in the middle of those circumstances, there will be good news. There always is. The gospel is always there. We love you so very much. We're so grateful to you. We submit our lives to you. And we pray that you give us what we need, not what we want. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. Phenomenal job tonight. Great messages. Man, you might have to go back and rewatch those. There are so many good nuggets in there.
I have to go and dissect. But let's stand and we'll pray in dismissal. You guys have a few extra minutes. You can socialize and go tell these two men of God how amazing that they did, the word that they brought us today. Lord, I thank you for this group of people, this sanctuary family. I thank you for the word that you had given your messengers tonight, Lord, and let that word marinate in our spirit and our heart and let us digest and think on it this week. Lord, let it apply to our lives, Jesus, and as you keep us so we can come back together on Sunday, keep us safe. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys, have a good evening. We'll see you again on Sunday.